Welcome to the Foxy Podcast, a bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato, Minnesota. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. And welcome to episode number 114 of the Foxy Podcast show. Hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you're listening from. Behind me right now, you're hearing an excerpt of the piece Sand from Chris Cole's lone solo release called Sand Lena that the Black Truffle label issued in 2015. Cole is a nomadic Canadian sound artist whose work focuses on small-scale sound environments, often employing contact mics and the subtlest of gestures to unlock the hidden sonic qualities and textures of everyday objects and surfaces. And over the past two decades, Cole has performed around the world and has collaborated with several other notable sound artists and improvisers, including Keith Roll, Tatutsi Akiyama, and Matthew Ruhlman. And she also has ongoing collaborations with James Rushford under the name Ora Clementi, and with her own partner, Oren Ambarchi, their most recent release, titled Hotel Record, stands as one of my personal favorite albums of this past year, in fact. And in addition to her sound work, Cole is also the acting director of Send and Receive in Winnipeg, one of the longest-running festivals in North America devoted to experimental music and sound art. This upcoming fall will mark its 20th year in existence, which is a remarkable milestone for a festival of this nature. I recently had a chance to speak with Chris via video chat in her current place of residence in Melbourne, Australia, though, as you'll soon hear, the sound of packing tape in the background confirms that another move is imminent. We discussed aspects of her sound work, her various collaborations, and her involvement with Send and Receive, and you'll hear that interview throughout this installment of the podcast show. And I'll also be playing several selections from Cole's discography, along with some tracks from artists who either performed at or whose work was featured at this past year's Send and Receive Festival. But before I move into that first interview segment, I thought I'd play an excerpt from the other side of this solo album. So here is a portion of the piece called Lena from Chris Cole. Thank you. 
I wanted to begin by asking about your your listening interests early on because I do find it quite interesting how people arrive at working with or appreciating these more abstract forms of music or, or sound. So I guess for starters, mm-hmm. you know, were you an avid listener of more conventional types of music prior to gaining an appreciation for sound in this more raw, unadorned sense? Absolutely. Um, I was uh, a very musically obsessed kid. Um, Far back as I can remember, I was just really, really into music. And, um, yeah, and of course, you know, you're you're nine years old, you're you're not listening to, uh, you know, organum or something. You're (laughs) probably... I mean, maybe, I guess, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I was I was very into, um, you know, actually mostly classic, classical, not classical music, classic rock music, classic pop music. I was very mm-hmm. into things like Motown and, and pop from the 60s and stuff like that when I was a kid. Um, and the Beatles, huge, huge Beatles fan. And so it kind of grew out of that. And I think getting older, I always reflect back on it and think, how did that lead me down this path? Right. Like, do, is there a reason? And I don't, I don't know. I think it's just that I was really into listening and I was really into music and mm. also just other sonic things happening around me. So, yeah. Well, I don't can know. can you pinpoint any experiences or maybe even were there certain recordings that were pivotal in terms of opening you up to this idea of how sound could be? you know, used, created, employed in various ways, not just in sort of a standard musical context, if you will. Mm. You know, I don't think, um, I don't think at the time when I was, I just realized you can hear tape being torn in the (laughs) other room. Um, I don't think at the time I really recognized um, how that stuff was affecting me, but Actually, I had a really interesting conversation with someone recently about a lot of the music that I really loved when I was young, like songs like um, Whiter Shade of Pale by Procol Harum, mm-hmm. or things that, um, some of the weirder Beatles stuff, of course, um, songs like CZ, uh, Suzy Q by CCR. Mm-hmm. And when I think about them, it's like, oh, they were doing tape manipulation, there was the, the, so- the sound quality of those songs was so unique, like the the way it was recorded, the kind of space that it occupied. Um, And I think in a way, when I was listening to that stuff, a lot of what impacted me was not just that they were well-written pop songs, but was about the atmosphere. Um, And yeah, I, I think more and more I'm recognizing that a lot of the songs I loved You've Lost That Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers, also a huge favorite of mine when I was a kid. (laughs) <laughs> weirdly yeah. um yeah just that that bizarre kind of the way it was mixed the way it was recorded the space that it takes and the kind of strange atmosphere that those songs sort of uh, the effect that they had i feel that that in a weird sort of a way impacts the way that i think about sound sure yeah well, in reading some older articles about your work, it, w- it was noted that you developed a desire to perform music while you were living in Montreal in the in the late '90s, I believe it was. And you know, I was just wondering, like, what was what was in the air in, in Montreal at the time that compelled you to create work of your own? Because I know you weren't necessarily like a 
you weren't a musician in the in the typical sense. Uh, was there something about that scene that was open and inclusive uh, that you were part of, or that you were interested in at the time? Absolutely. Um, when I was when I was living growing up in Winnipeg, I was a very avid music collector, and I worked in record stores, and I did a lot of buying for mm-hmm. the, the avant garde sections and things like that. But I I never really felt um, equipped to do my own. Music. I did a little dabbling, but nothing, nothing really serious. Mainly because I just didn't really know where to start, since I hadn't, I didn't have an instrument. I really had never studied anything or picked up any instruments over the years. When I moved to Montreal, I fell into very quickly into an incredible music community there. Which, um, I mean, you think about Montreal is it's a very inclusive kind of. DIY style city like everything's about people working together to make things happen and I just remember having a conversation a very nerdy conversation about music with a friend of mine I was already doing radio shows there and and he said uh, you want you should start playing and I said yeah but you know all I've got is this broken turntable and these things that I just kinda mess around with and he was like not you're playing I'm booking you to play two weeks from now in an improv (laughs) set with a bunch of other and I just sort of went, are you serious? And that was that. And so basically it was just the kick in the pants that I needed to go and and start playing. And so I just, from that point on, it never stopped. I basically was working with people constantly in, in Montreal. So someone forcing you to play <laughs> really is where, <laughs> where it all starts, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was terrified, but it was, you know, I'm still to this day super grateful that he did it because, right. yeah, it's just that you need someone to give you that nudge. And really, it's what I always wanted to do. It was the next logical step for me. And I was already thinking about that stuff all the time. I just was afraid to kind of put it out there. And right. I found Montreal a re- incredibly supportive place to just experiment and and uh, play with lots of other like-minded people. And you'd find I was coming from a very abstract kind of a, approach, technically and even just sonically, the things that interested me. But I'd be playing with an oud player or a jazz drummer, and mm-hmm. and people coming from you know di- very different electroacoustic backgrounds. It was really really fabulous place yeah. to try stuff out. Well, yeah, w- with your sound work, I mean, you've clearly developed y- your own approach and, and techniques um, where you often employ everyday objects, little scraps, surfaces come into play, voice, um, contact mm-hmm. mics, where I, I kind of feel like it's this idea of unlocking uh, like the hidden potential of these objects themselves like like what you wouldn't never you wouldn't necessarily assume that they're there like you're uncorking this uh really interesting sound um but there's also kind of this quiet delicate quality to your work that i also feel has this really playfulness about it too and i i guess i wanted to ask you like what attracted you to working with sound on this sort of small scale approach yeah uh I think it, it it just came very naturally to me to sort of start exploring small sounds, to start, um, I guess, I mean, I remember distinctly the first time somebody lent me a contact microphone in Montreal, and that was pretty much like the, the sky cracked open, and, <laughs> and that immediately became the thing I was driven by, was just the potential to to do small things but to 
to just start c continually unveil all of these different sounds that could be happening there. Mm -hmm. um, or which from the smallest gesture is how much variation of sound and texture I could sort of explore. Um, and so that, that was my starting point. And part of it was based on the fact that I didn't have any traditional instrumentation that I was going to, so I started looking around me going, okay, well, what would happen if I just played the table I'm sitting at? What would happen if I took my, my glass of whiskey that is sitting on my table while I'm playing and I actually stuck the contact mic under that and started using that as one of my tools? And so everything just became uh, a potential instrument. And I also love tactility. I'm not, I've never been really excited by working with digital processing or anything, um, I've, nothing against it. It just has never really been something I've enjoyed the process of. So for me, I, I really like the immediacy of doing things um, physically, creating the sound right. in the moment. And so in a way, um, like for me, the contact mics and the playing with objects allowed me to use my hands, to use my mouth, to use things, my body in ways that would, that felt very natural and, um, and also led to just it's discovering a lot of, to me, very fascinating yeah. So sort of the immediacy and sort of the physicality of it drew you towards mm -hmm. that and, 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 and by the sounds of it is what you're saying. Yeah, that's a big part of it. I mean, I love... I love performing in the sense of I love the process of making things in the moment. Um, and so for me, that physicality, that aspect of it is is just sort of makes it even more um, uh, kind of intense and involved for me. And so I do enjoy that aspect. And it just so happens I love I love the potential of those sounds and the sort of the fact that they only exist as long as I'm physically generating them right. for the most part. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe this connects then to, to my next question, because, you know, you've been active for quite a while as a sound artist, I mean, probably going on a couple decades now. And while you've been involved in a number of collaborative releases over the years, you've only put out, as to my knowledge, at least one solo album to date, which was that Sand uh, Lena release that was originally issued as a CDR and Black Truffle put it out in 2015. So I was just wondering, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you're simply more interested in focusing on collaboration versus solo projects or does this get back to what you're talking about is maybe just more of the performative aspects is what's important to you versus sitting down and getting yourself to record something in a way like you yeah you've kind of hit on something i i think partially i'm i'm just really poorer at pushing my solo work okay. <laughs> out into the world yeah um i and I, a lot of what I do solo comes from comes from either a live context or a very, very like decidedly controlled space where I'm going to work on something in particular. And so those those circumstances happen sporadically over the years. I have half of a solo record mixed and ready to go right now. That's been ready for two years, but mm. the second piece is not finished yet. So. I'm a bit slow with this stuff, mm -hmm. um, and over the years I've gotten more interested in, I think in the early days I was very much more caught up in when I make something, it's finished. As soon as I've finished recording it, that's it. 
and now I'm much more interested in the post-production aspect of sort of making a piece a little, elaborating on a piece, adding extra layers to it, creating, um, you know, playing playing with the mix and the EQ and things like that after I've finished recording. Um, and so that process is really great, but it definitely takes me more time. Sure, yeah. Um, and yeah, and I find with the collaborations, you also have that extra push of working with someone where you're both kind of pushing each other to get the thing, to get it into shape, to be, you know, to work at something that you're ready to release into the world. And when I'm left to my own devices, I'm uh, slower. Very, very... <laughs> yeah, the deadline, <laughs> the deadlines aren't as urgent, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it's it's ironic because I'm a huge record collector, and I I love. I love having documents of like yeah. that, but I'm, yeah, I think I'll always be a bit, it'll, I'll take my time to do these things. But there is another solo coming. Yes. It should be coming soon. <laughs> Within the next eight years, it will be coming up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, I wanted to talk about one of your collaborations that I've been particularly fond of, um, it's the duo work that you have with uh, James Rushford under the name Ora Clementi. And I wanted to maybe ask a little bit about this little write-up that was posted. I think it's kind of floating around in a few different places. And I'll quote it here. It says, central to your work are questions surrounding interpretation, the function of memory, semiotics, and the syntactical discipline of sound within both the listener and performer. So I was wondering if you could just maybe elaborate on this statement a bit, given that this project seems to be probably among your, your like most sonically and instrumentally varied uh, of the collaborations mm -hmm. that you've been involved in. I mean, maybe I, I, I know there's other things that are more varied sonically, but I feel like that one in particular uh, draws on mm -hmm. a lot of different sources of sound. Yes. Yeah. And I, I would agree that is probably the work that, that James and I do incorporates the most diversity of instrumentation and, and then, then most of the other projects I've done. Um, so that, I mean, part of what that blurb that you, you read references is the way that we use language in Ora Clementi, um, and that's something that developed really naturally between James and I early, right off the bat, pretty much. Um, I think the first show we ever did together, we played two keyboards with our feet, and we lip-read from each other. We sat across from each other and we just tried to tell each other things and we tried to lip-read out loud. And this was sort of just a, a, a sonic experiment and sort of process that we did and we loved it. We had such a good time and it led to all this really bizarre, bizarre <laughs> vocal work that we could have never come up with right. any other way. And a lot of that ended up on our first record. Um, and so from that point, we've always sort of thought about the idea of communication, the idea of, of kind of language and, and enunciation and the way we use words, the way we use our voices, the merging of our voices. This, this has sort of been an ongoing dialogue for us. But then on top of it, we're sort of both playing with this interest in, in sort of a dream state the idea of of things kind of merging in and out of each other that don't necessarily seem related and um, 
I think everything that we've done it, it creates that atmosphere in particular. And so we're, whether we're doing it through our voices, for, through the use of our voices, or through the combination of of unusual instrumentation or field recordings from somewhere that are merging with something that we're doing live, um, that's always sort of what's driving it. And we're always sort of trying to surprise ourselves a bit. I think in that we don't, you know, we have a, we have a sense of what we're going for. We have a collection of sounds and and instruments that we always use, but we're always looking to discover something new from ourselves and from each other. Yeah. So. Well, I'm gonna play an excerpt here from from the record "Cover You Will Softer Me," one of my favorite album titles. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> So we'll play that and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about some of your other collaborative works and other endeavors. So here is Ora Clementi. Wishes before 
Okay, I played a track there from the most recent album that you put out with your partner, Oren Ambarchi. It's called Hotel Record, and I just, I love that record. It's so good. Um, but I find, this, I find this material to be rather fascinating in the sense that in this area of music that you both participate in, there, there aren't that many examples of, of work that's quite so personal or intimate. I mean, none that really come to my mind right off the bat, but... You know, these albums are in many respects kind of documents of your relationship at a particular time and place. So for you, does that ever feel maybe uncomfortable sharing those moments on record? Or do you feel like there is an attempt between you two to create a certain level of abstraction to provide some distance or maybe openness to interpretation? Mm. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> um with our releases, I mean, I have to say, our first record, uh, Sonia Henny's Vey yep. 31, is a much more, uh, <laughs> um, I don't even know how to, what word I would use, uh, much more intimate content, I would say. Yeah, I'm than, aware, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've gathered than, that. Than some of, yeah, than some of the material on, uh, on Hotel Record. But... Um, even with that one, which is more of kind of a concrete piece, like that the first record is kind of a continuous concrete piece, uh, with, we tried to leave some ambiguity. We, we spent a lot of time kind of mixing it to a point where it felt that there was we were disclosing personal details of our lives, but we were still leaving it a little bit obscured enough that anyone could kind of come to it and you could listen to it as a sonic piece without being distracted by the fact that some of the content is clearly romantic in nature or what right. have you. Um, and I remember kind of having that moment of really being excited about the material, finishing mixing it with our friend Joe Talia and the three of us being like really excited and then going, okay, oh, we're going to put this out in the world now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but by that time, I was so happy with 
the piece. I was just so excited about what we had made that it was really okay. It was yeah. it was a bit nerve wracking, but it was exciting. Um, and then by the time we came around to completing Hotel Record, which is more musical, I would say yeah. of of the two, but still contains a lot of personal, you know, moments from our lives, uh, reading of, like, love emails to each other, things that are, are very much uh, glimpses into our personal lives. I, I'm just so, I, like, I love it because for me, there's something very special about making, creating work with my partner. Um, we both really, really enjoy that, and I love the autobiographical nature of it. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, there is, like, I, I always, my favorite records when I was in my early 20s were a lot of the records that John and Yoko put out together, oh, actually. Yeah. Um, and so for me, I what I loved about it was that it was sort of these little snapshots of their lives, this, these things that they made together, and there was no disguising it. It was just, here's, this is part of our lives together. And... Just the way you'd see photographers shooting their their families or their relationships and stuff, I, I found that was a really beautiful way of working with sound to also kind of document your life. And so for me, I kind of look at the work that Oren and I have done together on these records as a little bit of a documentation of our lives. And so I enjoy that process. And also, but making it into something that we really feel excited about creatively and both have for us been really, really important. Yeah. We both really love them. We're really proud of them. So it's cool. Yeah. Another aspect of, of Hotel Record that I find intriguing is the role of, of being a traveler. Um, and mm. even in our short time where we've been corresponding leading up to this uh, in interview, it's quite apparent that you, you're regularly on the move, uh, splitting your time between Winnipeg and Australia and various mm -hmm. other points in between there. Um, so oh, yeah. beyond just hotel record, do you feel like these travel experiences or maybe just this lifestyle of being on the move filters back into the work that you do as a sound artist? Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not always overt. It's not, um, I mean, in the case of hotel record, there's actually tracks that were re very specifically recorded, field recordings that we did in Thailand, for example. Um, which is a very distinct sonic atmosphere to to work with and sounds that you would only hear in in that kind of a place. But I find more it's sort of um, I'm trying to think of how to explain it. Like the travel the travel is like a symptom of of the lives we lead and the crazy the fact that we come from different parts of the world, opposite ends of the world, and the nature of our work takes us to all of these places. Mm -hmm. So in a way, we've had to adapt the way we make music, the way that's how we kind of can continue to create what we do through varying spaces and points of time. And so that influences what's possible, I guess, to, to an extent. So the travel plays a major role in that way. But I do think there are certain places that I spend a lot of time in that definitely affect the way that I think about sound and have probably inspired some of the work that I've been doing in recent years. Yeah, that was actually the, a question that I had for you is, you know, are there particular uh, cities or locales that really, that you feel 
have a, a very distinctive sound or pulse to them. Because I was reading, it was just this recent issue in The Wire magazine, and it was Kate Carr, her little write-up, and she said that one of her favorite places to do field recording was in Thailand. And and I'm just mm. wondering if you have those places that you're like, oh, man, this this has such a feel to it that's so unique. Yeah, I think, I mean, Thailand is extraordinary for that, definitely. Um, and also, actually, Australia. Uh, for me, the birds mm. in Australia are a huge inspiration. They're just unlike any birds I've heard. I mean, I love bird song everywhere, but there are just some really extraordinarily strange bird songs here <laughs> that um, really, uh, really interest me and inspire me. But beyond that, it's, I mean, field recording is a part of what I do in the piece that I'm actually, the piece that I'm working on finishing has a lot of field recording in it right now, and it's, some of it's from Lisbon, and it's very distinct. I think if you if you listen to the piece and you've spent time in these places, you would probably recognize it, which is interesting to me. To the fact that something that's sort of just a moment in time documented can could probably trigger a memory or nostalgia or a sense of familiarity for other people. Um, but otherwise, I think it's it's almost more about the the nature of a place. Like, we spend a lot of time in Tokyo. And to me, Tokyo is a fascinating place sonically because in some cases you're endlessly getting bombarded by sound. There's so much sound everywhere yeah. on the streets and chinko parlors and advertisements and people talking uh, out loud with, like, advertising on the street and stuff. But then you'll also find absolute silence. And you can walk into a space and it's just, so quiet. You walk into the subway and it's dead quiet. Mm. And it's it's me that sort of juxtaposition is really fascinating and and explains a lot about a lot of Japanese experimental music to me also. <laughs> and and that's something that's always really spoken to me. So that that environment for me is a really inspiring one to be in constantly. Mm. That's like I'm always thinking about that, kind of walking around and thinking about composition. And as you listen and enter different spaces, I think about that. Like, I'm not articulating it well, but I guess what I mean is I'll think as I try like spend a day walking through different spaces, I'll be thinking about that experience the way that I construct my next sound piece. Like okay. the way that I move through a piece relates to sort of being in those kinds of spaces, those sure. kinds of things where there's this really strong juxtapositions of of space and quiet against strong textures of sound and okay. things like that. Yeah. Well, in addition to your work as a sound artist, you've, you've also been the director of the long-running experimental music and sound art festival in Winnipeg called Send and Receive. And kind of just wanted to get a little background on that. Like, how long have you been involved in, in organizing this event? And what are some of the other activities in addition to just the festival side of things that it does throughout the year? Sure. Um, so Center Receive, this, actually this year, this fall will be the 20th year that the mm. festival has been alive. And um, this year will be my 11th year as director. Um, so for the first, the first, while it was run by another wonderful sound artist named Steve Bates, who resides in Montreal now. And then, yeah, then I took over uh, at that point. And... The festival itself is is sort of just contained within used to be five days. It's four days for the last many years, 
in the fall, but there's other things that kind of happen through the years. Not a ton, uh, or like through the rest of the year, there'll be the occasional exhibition or a partnership to do smaller shows, listening events, things like that, the odd residency, but mostly it's centered around the festival, which is in the fall. Well, I was wondering about, you know, like you mentioned 20 years, that's pretty remarkable for a festival of that nature. I mean, where you see, you know, like in Europe, for example, there's so many of these festivals that are devoted to this area of music and sound, but it seems like in North America, I mean, not not as widely available. I mean, I know there are some really great festivals out there, but it doesn't seem to be as widespread. Um, I'm just kind of curious how Send and Receive has been able to to thrive for as long as it has. It's it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I, I chalk that up to two factors predominantly. Um, the first factor is having a very passionate person driving the ship, yeah, <laughs> who's yeah. basically, um, which is the key important detail. And you know, at the time that Steve started the festival, he was just desperate to have stuff like that coming through Winnipeg. You know, as as you know, with your location, being in the middle is often an overlooked place. Mm-hmm. Um, for musicians to come through, for exciting art things to happen, and so he was really driven to start something where he could bring artists from around the world and across Canada into the center of the country, and so, and especially, particularly, people working in experimental sound, and so that kind of kicked it off, and he found, had a crew of people that really helped him to make that, to build on that. And um, and then for me, it's very similar. I mean, I ended up back in Winnipeg for what was meant to be a temporary stay and suddenly got involved with the festival and realized they desperately needed a new director. And so I took it on because it was something that I was already so passionate about. It's pretty much the best possible job I could have. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So that that's a big motivation. And then we're, we're fortunate that in Canada there is arts funding and that has allowed it to continue you know we do a lot with very little but we have that stability after so many years to keep it going right. so that, thus far anyways 20 years pretty good knock on wood um, <laughs> yeah that that's what makes it happen do you, yeah. do you feel like the festival has been able to certainly draw more attention or cultivate more interest and engagement in this area of music and sound art within the city of Winnipeg proper? Yeah, I feel like, I feel that the interesting thing is that after 20 years, our audience sizes have pretty, has pretty much stayed the same, but it's always shifted. There's always been new people coming in, some other people moving out, people move away, then all of a sudden there's a new batch of 20-year-olds coming to the festival. So it's, it has um, an impact. I think it's also helped inspire some smaller festivals that have started in Winnipeg and in the region. Like there's new sound festivals in places like Saskatoon that have only been in, you know, have been going now for six or seven years. And and so it's more you actually do feel the region responding to it, and even other festivals that are maybe not exclusively sound-based, but people who've done things with us that have now started their own sort of side events and stuff. So I do feel like on that level it has. And I definitely think the that the way that people listen, their exposure and knowledge of this kind of music has grown 
exponentially mm-hmm. in Aries because of that. Just being able to bring people like, you know, Tony Conrad and Annie Lockwood and Keith Rowe to Winnipeg and have them give these incredible lectures to audiences who are just coming, who maybe don't even know who, anything about their backgrounds or their music has been remarkable. Right. It's been really amazing to have those people become part of the discourse. Like mm-hmm. someone just wrote me the other day and said she's doing her university paper on Annie Lockwood and did I have a transcription of her talk and those are exciting moments for me. Right, right. <laughs> to be yeah, to be able yeah. to share that and get people in in to be a part of your festival like that of that stature. Exactly. I mean it's it's remarkable and it's really it's really cool to see yeah that it even just if, if a few people you right. see their work de- of developing or you see it having an impact in, in the way that they're thinking about art, their own art or whatever right. is, is really, really cool. Yeah. Well, this past year, Mark, as you mentioned, this upcoming year's 20th uh, anniversary, I thought, but maybe we'd talk about this past one because you really put together a nice lineup uh, for this 19th yeah. uh, edition of the festival. And it mentioned that a part of it was centered around this theme of artists who work, you know, quote, outside of the box. And could you explain what qualities it was that you were looking for um, when you were curating this? Or did it did it kind of present itself like you kind of like went, these are the people I want? And it went, oh, there's kind of a unifying theme there? Or was it, did you start off with the this theme in mind? Um, The, the theme is sort of, it's all there's always people who are outside the box at every edition of the festival. <laughs> yeah, right. You could say the whole festival is outside the box. For me, um, I really had a fun time playing with that theme because I already had a few people in mind who were definitely hard to categorize. You know, even uh, you know somebody somebody like Anaya Lockwood is hard to categorize, even though she falls into new music. She really is not a new music composer. She's she's not a tape music composer. She's not uh, you know, she's doing performance art, she's working with all these other strange things. Then you've got people like Graham Lampkin, who also I, is not interested in fitting into a, a box in any way, shape, or form, and and has, his work doesn't, it doesn't really allow you to. Like, it's a lot of these artists, you can sort of make a reference point to things that clearly some of their releases or some of their work relates to, but they're, they're tricky to uh, to yeah, just define very to put into a lineage or into a category. So so yeah, so I had a few people in mind, and then I thought, well, I'm going to use this theme, and that just allowed me to just go, okay, who else who else could go in here? And it also took the pressure off of relating the artist directly. Not that I usually do, but within the program, sometimes there'll be okay, this is a rhythmic program, and so I'm playing with different perceptions or, or interpretations of rhythm. Whereas this one I could be, I'm going to put Graham Lampkin and Junko on a bill together. These two people have essentially nothing in common. Right, you know? right, yeah. The juxtaposition made for a really incredibly dynamic evening and a really an, an evening that made was really divisive because people loved Graham and couldn't stand Junko or loved Junko and couldn't stand Graham. Yeah, and you yeah. had this interesting dialogue. Not that it was that extreme per se, but it created a lot of interesting dialogue about what you know, what is what the experience of their work does, how it what it created in people, why they love 
one after the other, you know, these kinds of things, which I thought was really fun and interesting. Yeah. Did you have any highlights from, from the festival that were like really stand out? Like, went, oh man, that, that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, it was so good. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of my, <laughs> just the whole, the whole event as a whole. Yeah. The whole event was so good. I mean, I would say in a way, the Sunday, the last day was just blissful because we had uh, Joe McPhee and Graham do an afternoon performance at this cafe and then we sat and did a, a talk together afterwards and they're both fabulous guys and it was just such a treat to have them and their performance was excellent and bizarre and touching and funny and we could put a little yeah. plug in here is that that conversation is now available. You can stream it from the send and receive site. And I did watch it and it was very entertaining. Oh, yeah, very great. And and that ties in the, all the people that were in the audience, which was there was this huge audience of locals. And then off to the side was the Nihilus Spasm Band right. and, uh, and Anna Lockwood and some other folks. And the evening performance that day was the Nihilus Spasm Band and who are just wonderful and irreverent and hilarious and just a bunch of fabulous guys. And they, they had Joe, uh, Joe McPhee and Junko and Tetsuya Umeda all invited up to join them at the oh. end of the concert. And it was just a blast. It was just <laughs> so much fun and joyful. And everyone, it was just this really beautiful sense of camaraderie and the audience was, it was totally contagious. So mm -hmm. it was, to me, that was, that was just a fabulous last day of the festival. Well, I'm going to play uh, some tracks here from some of the artists that were featured, uh, that performed, or <laughs> whose work was featured um, at this last festival. Maybe before we head into the set, are you already in the <sighs> stages of planning the 20th? Because that's obviously, you know, I mean, one of those benchmarks. Is the list being yeah. compiled of who's at you know who you're going to go after? Oh yeah, I mean the list is compiled. A few things are already nailed down, but I'm actually not prepared to say anything no. just yet. No, no, it's too early. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, it's 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 in the works. That's for sure. I think I felt after the after the 19th, I felt a little overwhelmed because it was such a superb edition yeah. that I thought, where am I going to go yeah. from here? But, yeah, but no, I'm sure it'll be. I'm sure it'll be a great one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm gonna start off here playing an excerpt from Ania Lockwood, uh, her her piece uh, "Tiger Balm." Here.
Rubenbaker. Destroy America! Okay, well, I wanted to, to wrap up because you mentioned, yes, you have a, a solo album that's in the works. That could be a while, but there are some <laughs> things that are more eminent <laughs> that we can discuss, some records that are in the, in the, in the pipeline here in the near future. One of those yeah. um, is a record uh, featuring Oren again and, and Leif Elgren that you have coming out on uh, Ultra Eczema at some point uh, mm-hmm. in the future. Um, can you yeah. share any details about that recording, like what that stems from at all? Yeah, so um, Leif is uh, an absolutely fabulous artist, as you probably know, and um, I actually had Leif at Center Receive a number of years ago, so that was when we first met. And Orn and I were doing a residency uh, at M's studio in Stockholm a couple of years ago, and while we were there, we were working, finishing up some stuff for Hotel Record, and we asked Leif if he would be interested to come in and work with us on something separate. Just let's just have some fun and do something. And he was completely on board. And so we spent a couple of days in the studio recording with Leif, and then we took the material home, and we kind of all ruminated over it. And it ended up with this very strange record <laughs> <laughs> that, as you would expect, I'm sure, um, that is, yeah, coming out on Ultra Eczema. And the record itself is, is one, it's one long piece, and it's sort of a, uh, an, a bizarre combination of recordings that the three of us did together but separately and processed through the Surge, uh, the Surge synthesizer. And um, I don't know what, I, what else I can say about it except that it's a very... Uh, it's very life, but it's also very us. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so but we we were both stoked. We're both huge fans of life's and he was he's such an absolutely lovely guy. And so, yeah, it it was meant to come out last fall, but we actually realized once the pressing was finished that every version every, every single record was warped that they had done something mm-hmm. at the plant. And so it's in the process now hopefully of being resolved for some time yeah. in the next few months. Plant pressing mm-hmm. issues. Hmm, that happens far too often. <laughs> far very too often. Common. Yeah, it's very frustrating. Yeah, yeah but one, uh, the other release to to mention will likely see the light of day. Maybe even before the other one is this new one that you have out with uh, Francis. And I'll let you say his last name because I don't want to mispronounce <laughs> that too. It's basically Plan. Plan. Okay. Francis Plan. Yeah. And this is due out on and Black Truffle here in the maybe a month or two out and I have had an opportunity to listen to this one and this is a very very interesting record kind of it's two definitely distinct sides to it one being this very textural almost uh, environmental sounding side but it's not Um, and the other piece gets into more song based elements really kind of sparse song based elements really kind of blending your two styles is that i mean is was that kind of like i was trying to think like you're talking together almost like okay we're going to start with my stuff (laughs) my approach and somehow we're going to end up with yours is that how it happened or what (laughs) well you know it's sort of we had done um another uh live performance together that was very conceptual. We're both very into kind of having a concept behind what we're doing. And so 
the first thing we had done was was more conceptual mini sketches of of these little duets. And when we came to do this piece, two words, it sort of it just became clear that we wanted to do something very abstract, which really comes from my background, which is lots of texture, lots of of layers. And then I was really determined to have Francis's voice on it because for me, that's such a distinct part of who he is as a as a songwriter, as an artist, as a musician. Even though he has done some abstract recordings that have been released as well, he's really primarily a songwriter. And I love the sound of his voice. And mm-hmm. so for me, that was we wanted to find a way to have the both of those things together and but not have it be really a song. And so this sort of thing just evolved from abstraction into song form, but the song form is sort of also abstract because it, yeah. it's, an, it's a poem that that we're using that doesn't really go anywhere and the organ chords don't really go anywhere it's just this sort of endless thing that could potentially go on forever <laughs> <laughs> and, and so yeah it kind of it became a really interesting way of, of merging two very different realities and seeing how it worked and I love that you start in one place and you end somewhere completely different Right. and yeah, finding a way to sort of sew those things together was an interesting experiment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm, what I think we're going to do is try to convey that with this track that we're going to play to close out this show. Hopefully we'll get across a little bit. I thought we'd maybe take a portion from the middle where there's the transition from the more abstract mm-hmm. side into the more song base, which means you're missing out on both ends of it, but you'll get a good feel of yeah. it at the very least. So, Well, I was just going to say that we, it's funny you mentioned that it sounds very environmental because when we did it, we both recognized that. We are both like, wow, it really sounds like the sea or you know, wind going through trees. And then when we played it recently live, we did it in Tokyo uh, in December, and we actually incorporated field recording into it as another layer on top of all the other stuff, and it worked so beautifully. Mm. It was so good. And, but I, I love that there is not actually any field recording on the actual record. It's all studio. We're doing right. it all in the studio. And it's hard to yeah. believe when you hear, I mean, as people will soon hear, I mean, it sounds very much like naturalistic recording. So, mm. well done. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, uh, Chris, for your time. And we'll head into this last excerpt here of, of the, the piece that we were just talking about. Well, thanks so much for having me.
just heard an excerpt from the album Two Words from Francis Plon and Chris Cole, which is due out on Black Truffle Records in late April, if all goes according to plan. Black Truffle, I should note, is the label run by Cole's partner, Orrin Imbarchi. And since I ended up with a little extra time remaining, I thought I'd round out the show with another track from Chris and Orrin's excellent album, Hotel Record. So I'm going to play the sidelong piece called Call Myself. For that, I want to thank Chris once again for carving out the time to speak with me for this show. You can find out more about her work by visiting her website at chriscole.com. That's C-R-Y-S-C-O-L-E.com. Or you can also find more information and links to the various albums played on this show by heading to our website at freeformfreakout.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch with me at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Check back in a couple of weeks for a new episode. And as always, thanks so much for listening.